This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sapanos. Today, I'm speaking with Dan Hilvert, Director of Hilvert Advisory. It's a healthcare sector-focused strategy, investment, capital raising advisory firm. In this first part of the interview, Dan talks to us about mergers, acquisitions, investing, and capital raising in healthcare. Let's jump in. Oh, hey there, Dan. How are you doing today? I'm well, Yanni. Thanks for asking. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, Okay. So... Um, looking forward to speaking with you today, Dan, because you bring a, a, a different perspective from a lot of our guests on the show, uh, because you, uh, you not only have had, uh, health experience, uh, in your, uh, career to date, but, uh, now you advise, uh, businesses in and around healthcare, uh, and you tend to look at things both from an investor's standpoint, as well as a business owner's standpoint. Uh, and I know you've, you're quietly a little bit obsessed with numbers, so I'm looking forward to uh, hearing some of your insights and understanding a little bit more about uh, the role of an uh, advisor in the health tech uh, sector. So maybe um, and w- with that, you can give us a little bit of your backstory, uh, Dan, on uh, what led to the launch of uh, Hilvert Advisory and um, and then tell us a little bit more about what Hilvert Advisory is. Okay, Sure. So I was an executive at Medibank. I used to run corporate development there, and I got a. Uh, I was actually setting up a health tech at the time, which is not what I'd spent the spent my ten years at Medibank doing. It was was a telehealth business, which is subsequently went to Telstra Health and then to an, another startup, Telecare Online. Uh, and that was a good ten years ago, and I was working very hard. And I got a phone call uh, from um, CEO of uh, Hammond Care actually, who said. Um, do you want to, do you want to come and help us with something? And I said, no, I'm a corporate guy. Uh, could, could never imagine a life outside of a big, ugly corporate. Uh, but, um, thought about it over the weekend and, uh, my wife actually told me you should think about it cause you work really hard and you're not getting that much reward. And I did and never looked back really. I, I, I think, uh, it wasn't clear at the time how the, the call was, but we ended up negotiating such that it would be a consulting engagement. And I thought, well, if this works out, I'll stick with consulting for however long I do it. Um, and it did work out and I haven't looked back. I love it. Very good. Uh, in terms of what Hilvert Advisory does, it's healthcare uh, advisory. Uh, a lot of it in recent years has been health tech, but it's not just health tech. It's also healthcare companies do a lot of work in private health insurance have over the years done a lot of work in aged care, hospital space, but probably 50% of the 10 years I've been doing this has been in uh, startups, one way or another in startups, either advising startups or advising organisations acquiring startups or investing into startups uh, in the healthcare space. And that's a very, very broad space. So I'll work right across the spectrum, right from, you know, in some cases a biotech type startup to uh you know, more arms and legs advisory, even consulting services, and 
what we think of more digital health and digital healthcare to the service providers or digital healthcare straight to the consumer. And as you know, that covers an incredibly broad, broad spectrum. You'd know it very well, given you've talked to all of these people. Yeah, it is a big domain that gets oversimplified with the word just the healthcare industry. Uh, there's so many, um, so many facets uh, to it. Um, and you sort of touched on some of the services that you provide there. Um, yeah, it might be obvious, but I'll ask it anyway. But why have you chosen to specialise in healthcare? and uh, both from a technology and service provision standpoint? I think it's interesting, complicated, and big. Um, it is an economy to itself. It's, uh, I don't, I'm not an expert on other sectors, so I can't speak, but I can imagine that other large sectors, mining, agriculture, retail, whatever, um, I don't think they have as much diversity in them as what healthcare does. Uh, in healthcare, you can look at massive subsectors within healthcare, like general practice or aged care or, you know, pharmaceutical. Just, you know, pharmaceutical itself splits into two massive sectors. You've got hospitals have got their own subsectors. And what's fascinating about it is they all have very different business models, um, very different critical success factors. Um, some of them are very corporate and institutionalized. Some of them are very cottage and fragmented. Uh, and it is very personalized. Um, you know, other places like pathology, it's not personalized at all. And it's like a big IT operation, really. Um, so, and then on top of that, I'm fascinated by the politics of it as well. Uh, that, um, you know, other sectors, you can just get on with things or, um, and you, and you can to some extent in healthcare, but the government and the public take such a strong in interest and that can create a, a very interesting political overlay. Um, yeah, look, it's a, it's a fascinating field. Um, I personally have uh, seen many opportunities within healthcare beyond the stuff that I typically focus on. Um, it seems to be a, um, an industry under construction uh, when you compare it to other industries that are far more advanced uh, in terms of productivity, systemization, uh, technology, uh, and what have you. Um, what is it about healthcare that tends to, why does the healthcare industry tend to lag when it comes to uh, innovation uh, in comparison to, uh, to other sectors? We don't know that it does lag. Um, so... I think there's a lot of innovation going on in healthcare, at least at the edges. But it, I guess, if it lags, it's in terms of generating efficiencies and consolidating and becoming simple um, for everyone to use. Uh, so that might be what you're getting at with lagging. And and the reason for that goes into the political dynamics. You've got We've got a complicated political regime in Australia. You've got the state governments controlling the hospital. You've got the federals controlling Medicare. You've got doctors with very, very powerful voices over Medicare. You've got nurses and um, their unions having very powerful voices over the hospitals and aged care sectors. You've got um, documentaries coming out of the ABC and other media outlets about some of the issues, and they're real issues going on in aged care, disability care and other parts of the sector and, and it's taxpayer funded so that the ultimate customer is the taxpayer 
Uh, so we all have a right to express frustration and to get involved. And the CEOs, the large CEOs of hospitals and government agencies, they should be responding appropriately to that. And it, that make that creates a lot of bureaucracy. And all these different systems, as I said with very earlier, with very different model business models. Um, there's not an obvious integration. There's not an obvious way they all just fit together seamlessly. And sometimes the incentives aren't there as well. Like, so um, a lot of healthcare is transactionally driven and doctors and nurses, everyone just likes sticking to their workflow. And if you upset their workflow, you're separating them from a dollar, which is a hard thing to do. It might sound a bit cynical, but it's actually not. It's just reality. Um, the listener of this podcast um, is probably going to have a hard time being separated from a dollar um, when it comes to their bread and butter business as well. So that makes it challenging. Yeah, yeah. I think those um, <clears throat> that is the complication of healthcare. I think all those uh, different sense of um, incentives or personal impact. It's what do you, what do you think, Yami? Do you think I missed anything? Well, you know, I think um, I think there's also um, a number of institutions that. Um, perhaps uh, aren't motivated by um, the coalface value proposition uh, that a particular user. So, for example, we often talk about um, user-centred healthcare or patient-centred healthcare, but it seems that, you know, the professional indemnity providers have a voice in that, uh, the um, IT and infrastructure providers have a voice in that. Um, it seems to be a lot of people other than the actual recipient of the healthcare service that get to have a voice in why the system needs to be a certain way. Um, and maybe, you know, just drawing on some of your private healthcare insurance, uh, take for example that uh, we still operate with, uh, for example, a card tap uh, type model when it comes to people uh, proving they're a healthcare insurance member, for example, um, as opposed to some of the more advanced tools that could uh, more accurately identify uh, somebody who is, um, you know, consuming those type of services. These are just sort of a couple of little examples where other factors seem to come into play, not necessarily what's ultimately um, seen as uh, valuating right at the coalface, right at that point of transaction between the recipient of healthcare and the provider of healthcare um, provision. There's a lot of technology that can really make gains in those particular areas. Um, yeah. But big established stakeholders in healthcare are either a not ready to do it or perhaps have other reasons for why now's not the right time to do it yeah yeah actually yeah that got me i mean i can think of quite a few examples and i'm sure you can where there's a there's a, a key chain requires a government bureaucrat to make a decision and they're very nervous about making a decision yeah uh, because ch change averse the larger the institution the more change averse you are and there's a good reason for that because if, if something goes wrong they'll end up on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. That's something that no one in government wants to do. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a, there's a lot of ways of um, analysing it and, and, and deducing, I guess, what may be some of the friction points. I generally these days just sum it up as uh, cultural innovation. In other words, um, and I, I define the word culture as the way that healthcare is delivered, right, the way that it – it's sort of looking at it holistically – uh, that um, whilst we can inject technology into the mix and uh, 
that could actually be very useful, very value-adding, uh, very game-changing in some ways. But if the culture is not ready to adopt it uh, for a variety of different reasons, then it's the sound of one hand clapping. Um, what's your take on that? Have you sort of uh, experienced those types of things? Uh, or where do you normally sit in the advisory? Are you normally on the on the buy side, the investor's side, or are you looking at it from the uh, from the, uh, I guess the, su- the supply side being the actual business that's providing the services or the technology. All, all of that basically. So I could, I could, um, so I, I didn't really explain my services. It's corporate advisory, which is, you know, code for mergers and acquisitions and capital raising advisory and also strategy advisory, which is like what the, you know, the big consulting firms of the world do. And there's not a lot of consultants out there who do both. And I think it makes a lot of sense because, um, you know, I just think it's odd that if you're providing M&A advice, you, you're not also thinking about strategy and vice versa as well, particularly with larger organisations. But So in terms of, say, on the M&A side and capital raising, I guess more specifically for startups, I would sit either with the investing institution or person uh, or with the um, organisation uh, issuing a capital, capital raise, and I would do it at all stages. So... I get involved sometimes at very, very early stages when uh, it's pre-revenue um, uh, and and help think about what is the pathway that we need to go on to get commercialised. Uh, ide- you know, ideally, and this is one point I wanted to impress on your listeners, ideally you don't want to do a capital raise. If it's at all possible to not do one and set up your business at least in the early stages without one, that is optimal, and I'm happy to explain why. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, all right. I'll, so I'll get to that, and then and then I also work with um, organisations that you know, the next level they might have a few hundred thousand in revenue. They've got that thing; it's selling, but they're at very early stages and extremely bootstrapped because they've got some overheads. And then the next stage after that, when things are starting to look promising, but you're still loss making, and then I guess the next stages after that, you reach break even at all. All um, roses from from that point. I guess I tend not to get. Oh, I have been involved in established institutions as well, but I I tend not to get as involved there. I think there's no real reason for that, but I just think the sort of service I offer it gets relatively things get relatively easy at that point. Um, and there is a group of there's there's group of people who've got investors in their pocket. You know, it's very easy to do a deal once you're making money basically. So I tend to swim where it's a bit harder to do deals. And is that, uh, yeah. Yep, go, go on. Yep. No, go ahead. Yeah. So I was going to talk about, what was it again? I forgot. Um, Boy, um, you were, you were touching on the reasons for why you're suggesting that, um, capital raising might be the last thing the, you need. Not yes, yes. And I'll, I'll explain might be, I think is the key word. I don't, I don't want to say don't do a capital raising, but I think if you if you think about what I think a good way to think about the development, the commercialization pathway uh, for any healthcare startup, I think you can put the early-ish periods in three or four steps. Number one is problem solution. I think we all um, know what that means, but just in case you don't, it's, you know, are you solving a genuine problem? And I know your story, Yanni, that that was really easy for you. So it's very obvious that there's a, and the, and the business, the technology was built out of that and it grew and grew and grew. And I was 
listening to Business Wars this morning and they were talking about the start of the diet industry and there was a woman who was overweight and she was fed up of being treated poorly um, in, in terms of told, you know, work harder to lose weight and people not empathising and that was the start of uh, Weight Watchers, which was incredibly successful. So, um, And that was just a group of people who got together, came to her house, a bit like Alcoholics Anonymous when that started. Um, very obviously a problem and then the business came out of that. Uh, but I see a lot of the opposite. I see people who have a solution and they're not quite sure if it's a business or they think it is but they can't quite articulate it. People will only ever buy something if it's solving a problem. No, no one ever buys something because they think it's good. They only buy something. This is businesses and individuals. If they, if it, if it solves, if, if it helps them to get out of pain, and I think that's particularly true of business. So I think that's really critical. Um, I, I've sort of gone off track a bit, um, but I will come back to um, cap raising. Um, then the second. The second stage is, uh, you know, what, what does the market look like? Testing, testing the market. Will people pay? And ideally, that means when you when you talk to people, and say, look, you are, you have a problem here. Uh, you don't use these words necessarily, but uh, and I I can help you solve it. And it looks like this. And you might at that stage already have something that can help them, or you might be talking about what you could offer. And I don't think a, as many people do that as, a, as is ideal. It's a hard thing to do. It's a daunting thing to do. But if you do that really well, then you might be able to get away with it out doing a capital raising. Or if you do one, it's just very light because you might be able to get a very high level of confidence that you can get a customer um, if you get to point X. And point X might be just a case of you having to do four weeks of killing yourself or um, or it might be four months or, or whatever it is. But if you can avoid a formal capital raising, which could distract you for six months, that would be a better way to, to go about it. Sometimes that's impossible if, for example, you need to build a system. Uh, and then the stages after that, I think, uh, you know, can involve modelling and, and more institutional type capital raises. Uh, and, and that can come at any time. It can come. When you're at the um, when you're relatively early in the process, or when you've got more revenue or, or on board. So, why do you why do you think so many people reach for the capital raising early in the piece? And are we sort of getting mixed messages from, uh, I guess the uh, the system, for lack of a better term? You know, you're coming out of um, school or university. Um, you think you've got a solution to a problem. Um, usually. Uh, you don't have a ton of experience. Um, you haven't really achieved anything in business at that point in time, but you're out there all of a sudden thinking, "I've got to, I've got to join an incubator, or I've got to uh, go to a pitch night, or I've got to find an angel, or something like that." Why? Why is it the go-to? It, it almost seems like it is the go-to strategy yeah. for a lot of um, budding entrepreneurs and early-stage founders to to reach for capital. What What do you think is going on there? I think in some respects, I think the the seeds of the answer are in the question itself. It, it, it's the fact that those services are out there. And I think humans, most humans, look for established pathways because it's easier. So the idea of joining an incubator, which is an established program, 
I'm going to have people holding my hand and making me feel good about what I'm doing uh, is, you know, a much less daunting idea than the idea of going straight to prospective customers and pitching them to directly to part with revenue, uh, to part with their income to, to service your business. Um, I'm not saying that incubators are bad, not by any means, uh, and I'm not saying that you should always skip to that step of talking to uh, to, to the organisations who could be your customers in all cases. Uh, but I think it d- does answer your question. It's just because those services are available and it's the least daunting option would be my guess. Is it is it also potentially that um, people like to uh, transfer the risk away from themselves and uh, have somebody else uh, pick that up in a sense? When you say transfer the risk, I don't think an incubator does transfer the risk. Uh, if you're talking about a capital raising, then of course that transfers risk. Yeah, and capital raising. For my mind, it's a different thing because an incubator um, isn't necessarily a guarantee of capital. It might. I don't even know if it's going to make you more likely that it will get your capital. It, it might. Um, but um, okay, going moving on to capital. Yes, yes. I I suppose so. Um, and that makes sense, especially if you're married with kids and you don't want to lose your house. Uh, so no criticism from me if you want to do that. I guess I guess what you should think about though, say if you've got the choice, if someone who is has got good reasons to be concerned about the risk of you know, losing a year out of their lives plus any money that may put up front, um, what I would, if they're for that reason going straight for looking for capital, I would challenge them to think, well, how much time are you going to spend looking for capital? And is it almost as much time as what you would spend building the product? It really might be. Um, and then secondly, how do you feel about losing other people's money? Uh, and if you're comfortable with that, then that can be okay. If you're not comfortable with that, then you might want to just bootstrap um, yourself for a while. Um, and I guess also having the mindset that you are very nervous about losing other people's money, that actually might be the right sort of mindset. to, uh, for, to be, If you've got that mindset, you might have the right sort of attitude to be a founder, actually, frankly, whether you're risking your own money or someone else's money. Because if you're feeling, you're feeling the sweat of it, um, that is one of the key success factors. I think, as Paul Keating said, when uh, uh, when they won the election in 1983, he was interviewed and they said, "Are you nervous about coming into government?" And he said, "Of course I am. If you if you're not nervous, you're no good." Which I, I think is is true. Um, yeah. Well, look, it's uh, it, it just seems to be a cultural thing now that um, there's a lot of encouragement for people to try and raise capital as soon as possible, but. Um, I don't know what your sense of it is, but it's a, it's a real low probability shot. You know, when when you're there with an idea, um, it's very very rare that anyone's going to put money into that idea. Um, you need a little bit more substance. Um, and uh, look, I've kind of I've kind of interacted with some data that suggests that you might have a three percent chance of being able to raise. Three percent. Yeah, really. That's interesting. At, at what? At the at the idea stage. At the idea. At the idea stage, that makes sense. That, that that feels about right to me. Yeah. So that means you've got a so. a ninety seven percent chance 
of not being successful in that endeavor. So to one of your points earlier, you talked about um, rationalizing why you're suggesting that capital raising shouldn't be the go-to thing um, because it takes a lot of your focus, takes a lot of your time, your scarce resource that you have at that very, very early stage. It's emotionally draining, incredibly emotionally draining. Don't underestimate um, how um, much it will hurt you to be ringing up 10 firms and just not getting returned calls and, you know, get the occasional meeting and they say, you know, come back to us in six months when you've got some more revenue. It's, um, that can really, you know, you might end up putting all your focus on that and not even trying to get the product up and running. And I think one thing I've said to you previously is what I call the financial review syndrome is that, uh, there's this issue that the financial review and other media sources, um, they write up all these great successful capital raisings for businesses that started three years ago or, or, or one year ago or six months ago, um, you know, by a photogenic founder and then put the photo on, gets, you know, it's great for the, the paper to hear this story. Uh, and I think people reading the paper read that and naturally think that that's normal. Oh, okay. You know, you just have, you're at very early stage. You've, you've got a customer who's not paying you anything yet. And then you get $4 million in capital. Oh, right. Okay. I'm going to go and do that. Um, but that is, it, it happens, absolutely happens, but it's, it's not. Next week, we continue the discussion further with Dan, covering aspects of advisory in the healthcare space. We'll cover topics like why capital raising shouldn't be a go-to strategy for founders of healthcare startups, and what high-quality revenue is, and some key insights in the industry. Speak to you then. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in collaboration with HealthTechX, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. And if you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos. And I'll speak to you in our next episode.